house, Greg? All right. Come on up, brother. How many of you guys appreciate Greg? I know I do. And I just want to encourage everyone right now. I know our, our attention is, is, uh, is diverted because of all the activity right now. But I just want to encourage you, put your hand over your heart right now. And let's just ask Holy Spirit to prepare us to receive his message. So Holy Spirit, we do invite you to come and have your way in our hearts to speak your word to us. And we will be intentional in grabbing a hold of your word and applying it. We will not just be hearers of your word, but doers also, so that we can be blessed and we can be a blessing to those that we encounter. And we just thank you for your goodness, Father. We love you in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, good morning, everyone. How are we doing this morning? Do we believe that God is on the throne? Do we believe that Jesus paid it all? Or do you have a price to pay in the situation? Huh? Jesus paid it all. Hallelujah. I just love what we're talking about this morning. I've got my heart is just torn so many different directions. So I have to rely on the Holy Spirit so we can go the right place. It's not about the messenger. It's always about the message. And the message is Jesus paid it all. Hallelujah. It doesn't matter what the sin. It doesn't matter what the condition. It matters not. It's the message of good news, folks. The gospel that Jesus, while you were yet sinner, while you were a most stinking, most reviling condition you could ever be in, while you were yet in a position so far from God that you were unredeemable in by the hand of flesh, Jesus paid it all. Hallelujah. He didn't do it whenever you took a bath and cleaned yourself up. He didn't do it when you make a de made a decision to follow him. He did it before you even came to the position that you knew you needed him. When are we going to believe the very words that we preach is good news, folks? Hallelujah. I've got that song just rolling in my spirit. Jesus paid it all. All to him I owe. Hallelujah. You know, sin, it might have left us a crimson stain, but he washed it white as snow. How many of us can raise both hands, both feet, and say, I'm one who has been redeemed by the blood of the Lamb this morning? Hallelujah. Glory to God. That's good news, folks. It doesn't matter where you sit today in circumstance. It's because of Jesus that you have a hope and a future. Hallelujah. And I'm here to deliver that message. We're talking about worship, continuing in the worship series. And last week, I'm not going to cover and review any of the, the things that we talked about. So please go and get the podcast or the tape, if you will. I guess we don't have tapes anymore. That's old language. Tapes have passed away. Behold, all things have become podcast. <laughs> So get online. It's available MP3. You can download it for free. Won't cost you anything except the time you'll take to go click on the links. If you don't know how to do that, then we've got a bunch of young people around here that can get you educated. Praise God. Go and avail yourself of the tremendous wealth that is available. There are some tremendous teachers, folks. Some tremendous ministers of the word of God. Some tremendous prophets. People that, are min that minister under the anointing. The bread of life. And so go and avail yourself. And I can give you some good, tried, true, and tested people, folks. People that you can pour the concrete down and trust what they tell you. Now that doesn't mean that you go on and just accept everything without checking in with your heart. You always do that. But I've checked in with my heart and more times than not, it, it's, it reconciles to the... That this is yes and amen, what they say. I can give you some good ones if you need to know. Okay, so we're talking about worship. Now, I started a series called The Heart of the Matter. The Heart of the Matter. And so let's just go ahead and just move into what we're going to discuss this morning. 
The heart of worship. Let's talk a little bit about the heart of worship this morning, okay? We're talking about worship, the heart of the matter. And last week, we talked about the scripture where Jesus met this Samaritan woman at the well. Do you all recall that? How many of you all were here last week? In just those few verses, we learned a lot, didn't we, about worship. We learned about Jesus' perspective on worship. And I think Jesus' perspective is the right one, is it not? If we're going to listen to anyone's words, we're going to listen to Jesus' words when he talks about worship. And he ended those scriptures talking about how a new attitude and perspective of worship had come. And that it was available for everyone who would, by spirit and truth, worship the Father. Okay, and so we're going to move into what the heart of worship really is this morning. And when you get right down to it, folks, worship is really, like Jesus said, an act of your spirit or your heart. They that worship him must worship him in spirit, okay? So really to truly worship then, we have to know how to access, we have to know how to focus, we have to know how to cultivate, we have to know how to guard our hearts. Because if it's a matter of the heart, folks, then there has to be a a focus put upon our heart if we're going to truly worship God. Can we see that this morning? Yes. But what this assumes is, is that we really even know what our hearts are. Do you really know your heart? If I was to come to you this morning and I said, can you identify your heart? What would you say? Somebody put their hand on their chest and they might say, can you feel, or take my hand and put it on their pulse and say, can you feel that beating? That's my heart. And you're right, that is your heart, but that's only one heart. Is that the heart that it takes to worship God? What is your heart this morning. We need to identify that. So what is it? And I would say to you, so I'll submit some, some of my thoughts under inspiration of the Spirit of God, that the heart really represents the true center of a person's existence, both physically and spiritually and soulishly. When you talk about the heart of the matter, you're talking about the core, the central tenet or the central element and it, ha- and it happens to pertain to all three pe- pe- people of who you are, persons, if you will, that you actually comprise. And that is spirit first, soul, and body. You are a spirit. You have a soul. You live in a body. Its role, really, if you stop and think about what the heart is, we can learn a lot by looking at the physical heart. Its role is really one thing, predominantly, and that is to circulate the essence of life throughout your being. Okay, talking about the heart of the heart this morning and the fact that worship is really an avenue or true expression of the heart and that true worship is a matter of the heart. And so your heart's central purpose is to circulate the life both physically, soulishly, and spiritually in your being. And when you look at the Bible in the original language that translates to the word heart that we understand in the English language, it's, it is to the center and seat of your spiritual life. It's the essence, really, from the original language of what drives your passion, what drives and sets and founds the vision that you have and the purpose that you're going to pursue in this life. That's your heart. Talking about your heart here this morning. What is it? And the Bible is very clear regarding the importance of your heart. And when you look at the heart translated from the original language, oftentimes you'll see it translated in terms of the inner man or the inward man. Or like Peter says under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, the hidden man of the heart. And you can see this in 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 3-4. through 4. Listen to what this says. It says, and you don't have to turn there, just listen and then go later and turn and prove out that I'm giving you the word of God this morning. Okay, just for the essence of time. Listen to what this says. It says that your beauty should not consist of outward things like elaborate hairstyles. Caleb, you do not have an elaborate hairstyle. You got the kind of hairstyle I like, brother. High and tight. Easy to maintain. Is there any elaborate hairstyles in here this morning? My brother certainly doesn't have an elaborate hairstyle because he needs hair to have a style. (laughs) <laughs> I 
You know, a lot of people will look at this and yes, Peter's talking and addressing women in this context. But guys, come on, let's, let's expand our, our, our perspective here. Because just as much as women can get focused on the physical and the natural perspective in terms of their identity, guys can do the same thing. Lest I talk about guys that have to go and spend three hours a day at the gym in the morning and three hours a day at the gym in the evening. And unless you're an athlete, and unless you're someone that's training for a contesting purpose in life, I'm not telling you it's a sin to do that. Please don't get me wrong. I'm just saying that unless you have a particular purpose or goal in mind for that, why are you doing that? You're putting a lot of focus on your body. You know, I mean, is, is it an elaborate hairstyle thing? For some guys, it is. You know, they want to look like the Hulk. You know? There ain't nothing wrong with looking like the Hulk, but what is your purpose in it? That's what I'm getting at here. So your beauty should not consist of outward things like elaborate hairstyles and the wearing of gold ornaments or fine clothes. In other words, we're talking about putting the value of who you are in the essence of materiality. The outward things. But verse 4 says, instead, everybody say instead. Instead, it should consist of what is inside the heart. With the imperishable quality of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is very valuable in God's eyes. So we see in that second verse there that we get to the heart of the matter, if you will, about the true essence of who you are when it comes down to the final analysis in God's eyes. And that is the inward man, the hidden man of the heart. And it's not all the things that take place in the physical realm and the aspects of your focus there and the goals and the pursuits there. It always comes back to that the essence of value is that what happens with the hidden man of the heart. And we're talking about your spirit and your soul that touches those aspects together. Your real person in life is the one that's within, not without. So put the attention there. That's another way of kind of rephrasing what Peter's talking about here. Greg, you're talk, supposed to be talking about worship. What does this have to do with worship? We're getting there. Some translations refer to this as the hidden man of the heart. Our physical body is the outward man. The soul is the manifested or expressed man. But the spirit is the hidden man. I don't know about you, but I can't look at any one of you all and see your spirit. Can you look at me and see my spirit? But yet, my spirit is here within this temple. That's what the Word of God teaches us. It's the hidden man to you, but not to God. See, that's what we're coming down to. And what did Jesus tell the woman at the well? They that worship Him must worship Him in... You must worship Him from the hidden man perspective first. That's where true worship arises. So this portion of us, it's hidden from man, but it's seen and focused on by God. It's what God relates to before anything else. It's what God esteems as valuable and attractive. It's the real essence of a person's quality, if you get right down to it. When you see this word heart translated in the Bible, particularly in the New Testament, it's the real essence of a person's quality. And you look back in 1 Samuel 16, 7, and you see a perfect example of this from God's perspective. Listen to this. This is when Samuel, the prophet, goes, and he's going to be choosing the next king of Israel. And he goes into the house of Jesse. And there's multiple sons there. And, and, and the sons have come by age and rank and file, if you will, before the prophet to, to, to uh, be judged and to see whether or not they would be the ones to be the next anointed king of Israel. And here Samuel has gone through every single son, if you will, or it does eventually go through every single son. And listen, right in the moment of when these, when this process is taking place, listen to what God says. But the Lord said to Samuel, do not look at his appearance or at the height of his stature because I have rejected him. For God sees not as man sees. For man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. Talking about the heart of worship this morning. 
So continuing to drill down on the focus of the heart from the perspective of its value, its essence, if you will, from a scriptural perspective, it must be intended to, it must be guarded above all else. Listen to what Proverbs 4.23 says. And I'm going to read it from the Amplified. You got your hearing, hearing turned down? Oh, come on. It's a cheesy joke and nobody got it. The Amplified version. Keep, verse 23 of chapter 4, Keep and guard your heart with all vigilance and above all that you guard. For out of it flow the springs of life. That's Amplified version. Listen to what the uh, New Living Translation says. Proverbs 4.23, guard your heart above all else, for it determines the course of your life. I love that. I love that. Guard it above all else because it's going to set the course and determine where you go. Do you think that, that an essence of, of setting your course and determining where you go might have something to do with the success of your life? Do you think if that's the case, then it would be important to put attention and focus upon that which would determine the essence of your life in terms of where you're headed, your ability to be successful? Do you think you should guard that? Do you think we should put some particular focus on that? These are all rhetorical questions, and I need some yeses here, I hope, from some people that are listening this morning. Hallelujah. So the, the scripture, it makes it plain that our life's direction, our course is determined by our heart. If we want to ensure our ability for direction, we have to put focus on our heart. We have to be constantly aware. And this is where, what happens with a lot of us. We, we go through periods and seasons and episodes that we put focus upon our heart, but there's not a continuity in the process. And what ends up happening is, is that we don't do what this scripture says, and we lose or drop our guard, if you will. And we allow certain things to enter our heart that should never come in, folks. And what kind of repercussion uh, can, can arise from this? Well, I'll just submit one particular example to show you how important it is to guard your heart. We have to be constantly aware of what we allow into it. And i got to ask you a question, again rhetorical. Does the devil himself, does he have access to your heart this morning? And people would say, well, I'm a Christian. I'm, I'm born again. I'm filled with his spirit. The devil has no access to my heart. Listen to what Jesus says in John chapter 14, verse 30. The prince of this world cometh and hath nothing in me. Now, if you listen to that one verse right there, and you, you stop and you look at the context where, which, uh, from which that Jesus utters these words, he's talking about the moment of decision for him to continue forward, carrying out the vision and purpose of why he's here on this earth. And he's saying that, let me just put it in the good old-fashioned Greg redneck phraseology here this morning. He's saying that the devil's trying to come, and he's going to try to do everything he can to get me off the course. He's about to come and really level his best at me right now. But guess what? He has nothing. He has no access to do that. Why? Because I'm guarding my heart. I'm guarding the compass. I'm guarding the thing that secures and, and presumes the direction for my life. The principle. So the heart, let's get back to worship now. The heart is the part of us from which true worship occurs. And if you look at Matthew chapter 5, verse 8, listen to what Jesus says right here. I mean, just some of the first words that Jesus utters as he's beginning to talk and move into the Beatitudes here. And listen to what he says. Blessed are the pure in heart. Blessed are the pure in heart. Why are they blessed? What is it about the purity of heart that pertains to worship, that pertains to anything to do with the relationship of God. He says, for they shall see God. How many of us this morning, if we were to ask the question, if I was to ask the question of you, how many of you would like to see God this morning? Would answer, no, I don't really care. No, there's not a single person here, I believe, that would answer no. Most everybody here would say, not only say yes, but heck yes. Give me all I can see. But you don't want to know what the first issue is to being able to see God. It has to do with a pure heart. It has to do with the heart that is focused on Him, that is not divided or diverted in attention. 
We're talking about the heart of worship this morning. We're talking about what it takes to really worship God. What constitutes true worship? And it's the essence and action of your heart. So, and i got to just break down a little bit here. It says, to see God. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. That word see comes from the original language. That means to behold Him with complete focus, not just look and go on. Oh, I mean, we're fixing to get into something. I need the organ to strike a chord right here. We're fixing to get into something. The word see means to behold something, folks. It means to behold something means something that captures your attention that it cannot be diverted. And your centrality of focus is on that thing. It means to behold Him. It means to behold Him and put complete focus on Him. Not just look and go on. So I have to ask a question this morning. How many of us in worship experience or in relational experience with God just look and go on? You're not beholding Him. You're not doing what Jesus said. They that are pure in heart shall see God. To behold Him. Hallelujah. To put the, the center of your focus upon Him and not just look and go on. How many of y'all have just rubbernecked at things? You know, that's what, a, that's what a good old redneck colloquialism right there, you know. It's just rubbernecking at God. It's like, well, that looks pretty cool. That looks pretty cool until the next thing that takes your attention. That's not what the word see means here, folks. So how many of us just look and go on? I dare say that much of our worship experiences, because I'm going to tell you that much of my worship experiences from time to time are just looking and rubbernecking and going on to the next thing. Amen or oh me this morning? David's tabernacle. And I, I did a teaching on this back in October of last year, and I invite you to go on the website and go access those archives. We really got into some aspects of David's tabernacle. Not everything, but some of the real aspects that pertain to the new perspective of worship that was being ushered in. The new, new form of worship. And still remains to this day. David's tabernacle changed the concept of worship. From one that was a confined and closed uh, uh, atmosphere that had to be rendered uh, service by only select people that were anointed that only certain times of the year and through certain procedures and organizational ability and all this kind of stuff could you actually access the very essence of the, the, the presence of the living God. It went from that, folks, to a break open the curtain, throw back the curtain, and show everything that God's presence was, could be all about in your midst. That's what David's tabernacle was all about. It was about an open format of worship. It was changing that concept. And the ministers literally created a habitation of God's presence for all to behold. Not just the high priest. And that was David's heart in the matter. He wanted to reestablish the presence of God in the midst of his people. The midst of God's people. But he didn't want it just to be the old form. He wanted by because of the vision that God had put in him that was actually a prophetic thing... Something looking forward to what would eventually be established through Jesus, our high priest, after he would enter once and, be, and for all in the heavenly realm, hallelujah, and put his blood upon the mercy seat that settled all for all of eternity, our redemption, hallelujah, that we could then have an open format, an open ability to come boldly before the throne of grace to receive mercy and find help in our time of need. Man, somebody believes this this morning besides me, I hope. That's what David's tabernacle was about. It was a prophetic representation of where worship was headed. And if you get right down to it, it's a symbolic of God's desire to abide with us. Without any limits, folks. No limits. No title. No format. No process. No race. No specific origin required here. All that would believe could come. All that would believe could come. That was God's heart. 
And that's what was revealed through David's tabernacle. Remember what Jesus said. Again, that scripture we talked about last week. John chapter 4 verse 23. But an hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers. Everybody say true worshipers. So if he's talking about a declaration of true worshipers, then there must be a whole lot of false worshipers out there. Oh, come on now. Come on now. True, folks, there's no such thing as a true and half true and partly true test. There's a true and false test. There's one truth. Everything else is false. Amen? Here Jesus is lining it out. He says an hour is coming and has now come. Verse 23 of John chapter 4. When the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. Yes, the Father wants such people to worship Him. He's actually looking for them, as one version says. The Father is seeking those like that that would come and worship Him. Because God is spirit and those that worship Him must worship Him in spirit and truth. So with this in mind then, how would worship be most hindered or limited in a Christian's life? I'm asking you that question. How can worship, if you stop and think to yourself, how is worship limited in my life as a Christian? How can it be limited? Is it, is it because of ignorance? You know, ignorance just, it's, I, I like what uh, Will Rogers said, you know, he said all men are ignorant just on different subjects. That's the truth of it. Ignorance just means lack of knowledge. It doesn't mean stupidity. It just means you don't know something. Can, is ignorance the ultimate hindrance to your ability to worship? Just not knowing something? It, can it be a hindrance? Certainly it can be a hindrance, but I mean, is it the ultimate hindrance? How about bad doctrine? Can that be a hindrance to your worship? Certainly. Certainly, if you don't know what we talked about to start this whole thing off, to try to bring you your uh, spirit into this process in acknowledging the good news of the gospel, and it's an old woe-is-me worm mentality, I'm just digging through the dirt and give me a cabin in the corner of glory, you're not going to worship God the way I worship God. Oh, come on now, because God's up there with the big stick ready to come down on you for any time you, you mess up. If you've got that mentality... No, that's not the case. I, we talked about the good news we started out with. Hallelujah. That helps to set a foundation, does it not? Yeah, bad doctrine can be a hindrance, but is that the ultimate hindrance? How about limited experience or practice? How about if you don't worship very often, can that hinder your ability to worship? Surely it can. I mean, if you don't do something very much, then the less you do something, the less you're very good at it. Just to get right down to it. You need to do things. You need to do what Jesus said. The real disciples that Jesus said, my real disciples, are the ones that hear my words and do them. That's what we're talking about here. We're talking about worship. Well, yes, limited experience and practice can limit, it can bring in some hindrances. But I'm going to submit to you something that I believe the Holy Spirit has just, I've heard some messages recently that have just inspired me. And I believe that this is the principal reason, this is thus saith Greg, but I believe this is the principal reason that those of us that sit here in this congregation this morning have a limited experience in worship. I'm going to get to it. You ready for it? Everybody ready this morning? We've talked about some good reasons that we can have a limited worship experience, right? Yeah, we have. But here's the real reason. I'm just going to get right down to what I think. This is thus saith Greg again. You judge it with your heart and you see what the Holy Ghost brings up in you. You test and try this and see if the Holy Spirit says, yes, this is right. This is where I'm at. Jesus gives the clear indication of the heart, quote-unquote, of the issue in the following scripture. Listen to what Mark 7, 6 through 8 says. He answered and said to them, Well did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites, as it was written. This people honor me, honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. And in vain they worship me, teaching us doctrines, the commandments of men. For laying aside the commandment of God, you hold the tradition of men, the washing of pitchers and cups, and many other such things that you do. And we could go on in that scripture. 
We're building up to the real reason. I feel like that worship is limited experience in most of our lives as we sit here now. At least I'm going to speak for me. We see Jesus foreshadowing it right here. It has to do with something called your heart. We've been building up the aspect of a revelation of what the heart really is, about how you're supposed to guard it, and what can happen if you allow certain things into it, and not allow it to be dictating the focus and intent of where you're headed in processes, especially worship. And he says that your lips can be there, your mind can be there, your process can be there, but your heart can be far from it. Oh, come on now. Your heart can be far from it. So here we go. Is everybody ready? The principal reason. The principal reason for a limited worship's experience in today's church, a hardened heart. Oh, now, come on. Don't look at me in that tone of voice. A hardened heart. And I know when you hear the word hardened, immediately you've got a perspective. You've got an, uh, uh, something already, a figment of your mind in terms of what that means. But I'm going to prove to you. I'm going to probably end up laying back, pulling back the curtain on something you hadn't thought about. Hallelujah. I say I. I just believe the Holy Spirit. He's the teacher. Help me, Holy Spirit. The principal reason it's a hardened heart. And people could sit here this morning, including myself, from a soulless perspective and say, Greg, are you saying that born again, blood-bought children of God can have a hardened heart? Yes. Yes, I can say that. I can prove it out scripturally, and I'm about to do that. It's a hardened heart, folks. The principal, I feel like the principal reason why the things of God are of such little effect in our lives. This Bible speaks throughout regarding hardness of heart. But what does it really mean? I mean, what does it really constitute to say you have a hardened heart? You know, most of us immediately, when I said a hardened heart, you probably immediately jumped to sin, didn't you? Oh, I know some of you guys shake your head and go. Hardened heart is a person that's in rebellion. Come on, that's the first thing I think of. When I think of hardened heart, I think of rebellion. Like the children of Israel. Were they rebellious? You can go over to Hebrews and you can see, the, see them talking about, or, or see Paul talking about the, the Hebrew children, the children of Israel, Israel, and they were talking about, he's talking about their rebellious heart, and that it was sin. It was sin. Most of us immediately jump on sin from a perspective of unforgiveness. You know, unforgiveness can harden your heart. It sure, certainly can. And we have a ministry here in the church called Father's Heart. The word heart is a part of that. Father's Heart. And unforgiveness is a big part of what Father's Heart is all about. Is coming through a process from a soul perspective. Having a revelation of what it means to truly forgive and be released. And to release the judgments that you have on other people. That are holding you in judgment. Hardened heart. It's not just sin folks. It's something else. We're getting up to it. A lot of people immediately would say, well, the hardened heart results from a rejection of the Word of God. And I would concur. Yes, it does. It does. I can give you scriptures for all of these. The first one, rebellion, we talked about, Hebrews chapter 3, 7 through 12. The first, next one, unforgiveness, just one example, Matthew 18, 21 through 35. The third aspect of how sin can harden your heart, rejection of the Word of God, John chapter 12, verse 48. There's some good scriptural underpinning for what we just discussed. But in most cases, if you haven't understood where I'm headed, folks, the hardened heart concept that I'm talking about now has nothing to do with sin. And people are going to say, that doesn't make, it makes no sense at all. Sin's what separates you from God. It has nothing to do with sin. You want me to just, I'm going to drill on down a little bit farther. I'm just getting, metering it out here. Satan's ultimate weapon I submit to you today, as thus saith Greg, Against Christians today, especially. It's diversion. It's diversion. What do I mean by diversion? I mean anything that will attract, guess what? Your attention and focus. Anything that will take your eyes off the prize and onto it. 
I'll submit to you today that that is the most... Uh, uh, su- Satan's greatest weapon is the, mo- is the subtle one with the Christian. Sure, you know, he can bring the challenges of sickness. Sure, he can bring the challenges of poverty. Sure, he can bring some aspects that we have been delivered from. But if we don't walk in that supernatural aspect, that it can have a, a hold upon us. But really, when it gets right down to it, as far as the greater effect and dampening of the Christian's effectiveness in this life, folks, particularly as it regards today's 21st century church, is this aspect of the subtle, subversive technique of diversion. It's diversion. If he listen to what this says, the Holy Spirit gave it. If he can get your heart diverted, he can get it hardened. If he can get your heart occupied, he can get it ossified. How many of y'all know what ossification is? It's the hardening of your bones. It's the hardening of your bones. If he can get your heart occupied, he can get your heart ossified. He can harden it up. So let's move into the hardened heart. The one that I'm talking about. When you stop and think about this, and I'll tell you that I've, I've rendered some of this, I've borrowed some of these aspects from Andrew Womack. How many of y'all have ever heard of Andrew Womack? Tremendous teacher of the Word of God. Tremendous teacher. I would invite you to go on the web. Like I told you earlier, I can give you some good, I can give you some good uh, examples of people to go and listen to their teaching. Go listen to him. Go on there and access and download his MP3 uh, uh, files that are archived on the hardened heart. Tremendous revelation potential there. I'll give credit to whom credit's due. i tell you what, the wheel doesn't have to be reinvented when the Holy Ghost is the one that put it together to begin with. Hallelujah. So I'll I'll take advantage of what's out there. He says that the hardened heart really has to do with a cold, insensitive, unfeeling, and unyielding perspective. If you get down to it, this is what I'm talking about with respect to the real issue with, with uh, regard to today's Christian. It's a hardened heart. It's one that has been through diversion, rendered cold, rendered insensitive, rendered unfeeling, rendered unyielding unto the supernatural. The hardest heart of all, folks, may truly be that of today's Christian who has allowed the distractions, the cares, the anxieties of this life to render their heart numb, unresponsive, unyielding, or even cold to the things of God. And i got to say this morning, folks, that this can happen to anyone and it can happen to any degree. It can be a little bit. It can be a lot of bit. It can be the servant in the nursery. It can be the pastor of New Covenant Fellowship. It can be a person that teaches at New Covenant Fellowship. It doesn't matter. Your heart can stand. You can stand here today even teaching the Word of God and my heart is hardened. I'm just admitting to you that it is. I have some hardened hearts and hardened parts of my heart. People look at me cross-eyed. Folks, it's not the messenger, it's the message. See, that's the problem is we put all of our focus on the messenger and when the messenger screws up, we render the message neutral. We render it invaluable, but that should never be the case. You need to listen in here with regard to what the essence of the message is and does it reconcile here. If it does, folks, it's it's regardless of the messenger, folks. Receive the truth, hallelujah, and be set free. So it can happen to anyone and to any degree. And if you look at the parable of the sower, Mark chapter 4, verses 3 through 20, really, I can tell you, folks, the revelation of the Word of God is multifaceted. We so, so, times, so oftentimes think that we get a perspective and that's it. But no, it's multifaceted. It's multifaceted in its truth. I really believe that the Lord has given me some perspectives on the parable of the sower. I really believe that when you look at this, it's a tale of the hardened heart. It's a tale of a hardened heart. I'm not saying that's all it is. But I'm saying with respect to what we're talking about here, it fits very well. Listen to what it, listen to what it says. Well, I'm not going to read it because we just don't have time. I'm going to go on. So you go and read it for yourself. Mark chapter 4 in particular, verses 3 through 20. You see that it talks about a sower goes to sow what? 
the Word of God. And he goes out to cast his seed. It first falls on the soil of a hardened path, if you will. A path that the soil has no ability to accept the seed. And in fact, the seed just lies right directly on top of it. It never gets into the soil. It's completely exposed to then be scooped up by the birds of the air, which are, which are really the demons and the influences and the things of this world that would come and rob and steal the Word and its ability to produce in your life. That's the first set of circumstances. That's the first circumstance of a heart. And that is a hardened heart. And if you want to get right down to it, I believe that that path represents our access and connection with the world. And the more and more that we have that connection with the world, and the more and more we allow the world access to our heart, the more potential for the Word of God to fall in an area that it just gets immediately stolen from from us. You want to know how important it is to guard your heart from the world? It's as important as your ability to keep the seed of God from being of no effect in your life. From being, not just being of no effect, but being stolen from you. And then the next aspect is, or the, the condition of the heart, is one that is literally straight up hard. Because it says that the soil is so shallow that there's rock underneath one verse, or one particular translation says. There's rock, the bedrock is so shallow, the root, even though the seed gets taken into the soil, it can't grow a root because it reaches a hard spot. It can't penetrate and become established in your life. Folks, I don't know about you, but that sounds like a hardened heart to me. Then you get into third aspect, and that's whenever the seed actually gets makes it into soil that has the potential to grow and produce things, and there might not necessarily be a bedrock shallow to the surface of the soil, but then what ends up happening is the cares of the world, the deceitfulness of riches, the things of the materiality that we talked about earlier in 1 Peter chapter 3 become something that grow up in a greater manifestation than the Word's growth in our life and chokes out its ability to produce a harvest. That's a hardened heart, folks. Then you get to the good heart, the good soil. And guess what? It's soft. It's supple. It receives the soil or seeds the seed and it grows and sets a root deep within. And it grows and produces some 30, 60, and 100 fold. And I'm telling you this morning by way of the Spirit of God, every one of us sitting here have, one, have those conditions in varying forms. We have aspects that we're connected to the world, that we have a strong connection to the world that represents the path. We have aspects of our life that, 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 the, that are not, our heart is just hard. It's barely been settled in the things of God with certain aspects. And so the root can't get down. It can't get established. We have aspects where the cares and anxieties and the deceitfulness of riches in this world occupy an equal or even greater potential of growth in our life than that of the Word of God and renders it unfruitful. But then we have aspects where the soil of our heart receives the Word of God with meekness and it becomes engrafted and it saves our soul. I feel like that it's a picture of every one of our hearts in total. There are aspects of all those conditions, I feel. That's thus saith Greg, you prove it out by way of the Spirit of God and the Word, okay? That's what seems right to me. So then you move into Mark chapter 6, verse 45 through 52. Talking about a tale of a hardened heart. Here we go into another aspect. And this is really drilling down to it. And when we look at this. Let's just, let me just read this. And straightway he constrained his disciples to get into the ship. And go to the other side. Before unto Bethsaida. While he sent away the people. And when he had sent them away. He departed into a mountain to pray. And when, he, when even was come. The ship was in the midst of the sea. And he alone on the land. And he saw them toiling and rowing. For the wind was contrary unto them. And about the fourth watch of the night. He comes to them walking on the sea. And would have passed them by. But when they saw him walking upon the sea. They supposed it had been a spirit. And cried out. For they all saw him and were troubled. And immediately he talked with them. And said unto them. Be of good cheer it is I. Be not afraid. And he went up unto them into the ship. And the wind ceased. And they were sore amazed in themselves. Beyond measure and wondered. For they considered not the miracle of the loaves. For their heart was hardened. Who are we talking about here? We're talking about disciples of Jesus Christ. We're talking about people that became apostles. Sent ones. And matter of fact, they already were sent. And if you get right down to it, folks, this wasn't the first rodeo with Jesus. 
Up to now, in fact, they had witnessed the power of Jesus on multiple occasions. And let me just rattle those off right quick. They had witnessed the man with the withered hand get healed. They had witnessed the calming of the wind of the waves. They had witnessed the deliverance of a demonized man, the demoniac of gathering. They had witnessed Jairus' daughter raised from the dead. They had witnessed the women with the issue of blood that got healed. They had also witnessed the feeding of the 5,000. That had just happened. And they were leaving from that event, having been constrained by Jesus to get in the boat and go to the other side. This wasn't their first rodeo, folks. And in fact, if you want to get right down to it, in Matthew chapter 6, just a little bit before this, Jesus had actually sent them out in pairs, anointing them to heal the sick and drive out demons. Mark chapter 6, verse 13, they, and they did this. Verse 13 says, and they did this. So they had wrought miracles by their hands. By their own hands because of the anointing that was placed upon them by Jesus. And yet here we see Jesus constraining them to get in the boat. Go to the other side. And we see this whole story play out. And then they end up to the end. And the reason for why things didn't turn out the way they should have turned out is because, let's look at the thesis verse in verse 52. For they considered not the miracle of the loaves, for their heart was hardened. Folks, I didn't say this. The Word of God says it. We're talking about Christians. We're talking about disciples of Jesus Christ. We're talking about, talking about disciples that have experienced the miracle power of God among their midst. Have seen it with their own physical eyes, folks. Had touched Him. Had hugged Him. Had lived with Him. Had slept in the same room, in the same place with Him. Had eaten with Him. And their heart was hardened. And I submit to you, that, folks, this morning, how much more can we, could we be in a place that our heart is hardened? How much more could we be in the same circumstance here? That we consider not, that we consider not the miracle of the loaves, if you will. So a picture of the hardened heart. What was the disciples' reaction here? And if you look in verse 51, it says it. It says that they were sore amazed in themselves beyond measure and wondered. And I submit to you this morning, isn't that the normal reaction? Isn't that the normal reaction? It's the normal reaction to the miraculous, is it not? Whenever you see something you've never seen before, don't you stand back in, in awe and go, Oh my goodness! That is incredible! That is awesome! And isn't that what they did? They were sore amazed is what it says. Beyond measure, it says. They were amazed beyond measure and wondered. I don't know about you, but if I was to look out there in the middle of a sea that was raging and seething with the effects of a storm, and I am a per Folks, these men were learned men when it came to seamanship. They were fishermen, most of them. They knew what it meant to be out on the sea in the middle of a bad circumstance. And i got to tell you, we're going to get to it here in just a little bit, but Jesus had to actually constrain them to go. And I love what Andrew says. He says, well, being constrained means that he had to talk them into it. And I've got to ask you this morning, there's a reason why we need to be able to look past the natural and get to the super to add to the natural, because Jesus is going to ask us to do things that you can't do in your own street. He's going to ask you and give you a vision and a purpose and something to do that you cannot muster the energy to produce. And I'll tell you, every single one of you here this morning have that. You've been told to go forward. You've been told to go out and preach the good news. And to lay hands on the sick. And to make disciples. To drive out the demons. To baptize people in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. I don't know about you, but that's beyond my natural abilities. I jumped ahead of myself a little bit, but that's okay. So they were sore amazed, just like every single one of us sitting in this room would be too if we saw the same thing. Don't sit there and go, no, man, I, that ain't my first rodeo. I believe in Jesus. Yeah, Jesus. Yeah, well, you walking on water now, huh? Well, yeah, I expected that. So isn't this the way that you would feel and perhaps respond? It seems completely normal, doesn't it, to respond this way? And it's perfect for the situation until we see the reason for it. The reason for it is in verse 52. For they consider... So why is it that they were sore amazed in themselves beyond measure and wondered? Because in verse 52, there's the thesis. 
There's the, the reason for it. For they considered not the miracle of the loaves, for their heart was hardened. Oh my goodness, folks, there's some tremendous things here. So according to Scripture here, the reason for their response was a hardened heart, folks. It was hardened. In other words, they related and responded more to the natural things than they did to the supernatural. And if you get right down to it, that's what a hardened heart will do to you. i got to ask you, is it a problem? Well, it's, it is a problem because the word characterizes a response to the natural over the supernatural as a hardened heart. That's exactly what it characterizes here in the Scripture, does it not? It does. But let me ask you this. Does the Bible say anything about the disciples' attitude being one of sin here? Does it say they sin? No. It doesn't say, and go and sin no more, ye of a hardened heart. It doesn't say that. It just says that they considered not the miracle. I mean, when it gets right down to it, it has to do with consideration. They considered not the miracle of the loaves. It's not about sin, folks, that harden their heart. It's the fact that they considered not. They considered not. So again, the hardened heart that we're talking about here is one that is cold, one that is insensitive, one that is unfeeling or unyielding. And it's evident here that it results in a dulling of a person's ability to perceive and understand things, in particular, the things of God. You want to know how important it is to not have a hardened heart? It's as important as your ability to not only perceive but understand the things of God and respond to them correctly. So Jesus clearly conveys what characterizes a hardened heart in just another ch- couple chapters down the road. Matthew, or Mark chapter 8, verses 17 through 21. Listen to what this says. Then he charged them in verse 15 saying, Take heed, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. And they reason among themselves saying, It is because we have no bread. See, here's the first, first uh, this right here is the primary reason, if you will. Reason. You're falling back on trusting in what you understand and not leaning wholly to Him beyond your understanding. They reason among themselves, saying, It is because we have no bread. But Jesus says, or Jesus being aware of it, said unto them, Why do you reason because you have no bread? Why did you come up with that as the reason for for what I said to you? Do you not perceive nor understand What did I say a hardened heart will do? It'll keep you from perceiving. It'll then, if you do perceive it, it'll keep you from understanding it. He says, do you not perceive or understand? Is your heart still hardened? Isn't that interesting? Here Jesus says it again, folks. Very powerful scriptures. Having eyes, do you not see? So then he he iterates now the characteristics of a hardened heart. Here they are. Having eyes, do you not see? Having ears, do you not hear? And do you not remember? See, the characteristics of a hardened heart, if you want to look at yourself and say, do I have a hardened heart? Are you in a position to where, regardless of how much something is said to you about the and your heart registers that it's the truth, the Word of God, is it going in? Are you perceiving it? And if you're perceiving it and you're relating to it then, though, does it actually produce fruit because you then receive it and it becomes engrafted in you? In other words, do you understand it? Does it become revelation unto you? And then here's another characteristic, and I love the way he brought this out. And this really gets right down to it. Do you remember, folks, when it comes to the circumstance, when the storms rise, do you recall, do you remember the miracle of the loaves? That's a litmus test for where you're hardened or how hardened your heart is. So the symptoms of a hard heart, and we're just about done, unable to perceive, unable to understand, unable to see, unable to hear, and unable to remember. Characteristics of a hardened heart. Can you all see that? These are all speaking of inabilities in the spiritual realm. This is not a natural reasoning thing, folks. Hardened hearts limit your ability to perceive spiritually. Or in the case of a limited perception, it'll inhibit your ability to understand it. So you might actually get in, but you never really understand it. i got to ask you this morning, are you sitting in a place that the things of God are like this to you? 
You might perceive a few of them. You might actually have a few points of knowledge when it pertains to the things of God. But when it comes right down to it, you just don't understand them really. And you're not able to work them through faith, if you will, to a productive end. I am not preaching doom and gloom and condemnation, folks. I'm preaching an encouraging message that will provide an opportunity for a change of paradigm. A paradigm shift, if you will. People that are hard-hearted towards God are spiritually blind and they're deaf. They just can't see spiritual truth or hear the Lord speak to them. And they can't remember it even if they do. Not remembering is a major indication of the condition of your heart. And in time when a supernatural need arises, carnal knowledge, folks, isn't going to cut it. And though you might sit here with PhDs and ADDs and EDDs and everything else you've got behind your initials with regard to the things of the natural aspects of today's knowledge, when it comes right down to cancer entering your life, what is that going to do in the sum of things? I think at that point in time, you're probably going to reach out to something that goes beyond your natural understanding. Amen? So when those times come, folks, don't we need to be in a place to where we don't need to be mounting the effort for for us to learn these things? That needs to be happening now. And that's talking about not having a hardened heart. Let's talk about softening your heart. What is your heart focused on? What does it consider first? That's what it gets right down to. What does it consider first? What did that verse say about the fact that they had a hardened heart? What was the reason for it? They considered not. So i got to ask you this morning, if you're judging yourself and you're saying to yourself, do I have a hardened heart? When you enter the situations that exceed your abilities, when you enter and go beyond your ability to reason through something, and you're looking to God and you're applying the super to your natural, what happens first? What is your first consideration whenever you encounter those, those circumstances? Think of the disciples here. They considered not the miracle of the loaves. That was the primary reason. They didn't remember it, even though it had just happened, for crying out loud. It wasn't sin that was the issue here. It was what they did not consider. In other words, what is it that your heart is focused on? If you want to talk about consideration, it really means, from the original language, to study. It means to ponder. It means to deliberate or examine or think upon. That's what the word consider means. In a word, it really comes down to meditate. What is it that your heart is meditating upon? What is it that it's focused upon? What is it that it is considering? And if you want to get down to how you really truly soften your heart, this is it, folks. Whatever you consider, your heart is softened towards. Whatever you meditate upon, your heart is softened towards, good or bad. It doesn't matter. Whatever you ignore or give little attention to, your heart is hardened towards. It's a natural thing. It's something that God's put in us. Because guess what? We're not to consider. We're not to consider the circumstance. We're not to consider the, the, the waves and the, the things that beat upon our boat. We're to be hardened to that. Our heart should harden, but it should harden to the right things. And then it should soften to the things that we are considering. Because guess what? We're considering the miracle of the loaves, if you will. First and foremost, it's not just loaves. It's all the things that God can do. And it proven through Scripture. So whatever you ignore or give little attention to, your heart's hardened towards. Whatever you consider or meditate on, your heart is softened towards. And if you look at Joshua 1.8, this is how you do it. This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth. Thou shalt meditate therein every once in a while. Whenever you have a problem. Whenever the circumstances or the, or, or the tough get going. You know, the things get, the, the going gets tough. No, it says you'll meditate on it day and night that you may be careful to observe, to do according to all that is written. For then you shall make your way prosperous and you shall have good prosperous and you shall make yourself have good success. How many of us want to be prosperous this morning? How many of us want to have good success in whatever it is we put our hand to? Of course we do. Well, then the, 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 law, the book of the law says it very clearly right here. It says that if I will meditate... If I will consider the law of God day and night. If I will see that before I see everything else. 
In other words, if my heart is soft to God and His Word and hardened into circumstance, I will be successful in all that I'd put my hand to. The word here, meditate, it means to mutter. It means to go over and over something, to speak it to yourself and sit there and mutter it to yourself under your breath, silently in your mind, thinking about it. So now let's come full circle. What does this mean for worship? What does this mean for worship, folks? Do I need, really need to talk about that? Worship is, a, is an essence and expression of your heart. If you are having a limited experience in worship, I submit to you, it's because it might be because of this. It might be because we're considering and have our hearts focused upon and full of things other than God. Oh, come on now. I'm not talking about sin. I'm talking about diversion. I'm talking about division, a, a divided heart, because you're considering many, many, many other things. And by the time you come to a place that you start to consider God, He's just a part of everything else. Huh? Man, it's quiet in here this morning. I guess this is just for me. I think we can see that limited attention and focus on God, it'll harden your hearts, folks, to Him, which will in turn limit your worship experience. So your meditation or focus, I'm going to leave you with this, determines what your heart is softened or responsive to. Are we you meditating on God? Are you meditating on what His Word says? When we come in to worship, or when you worship at home, what is it that you come from, from a perspective of your consideration? What is it that you're considering? I, I, I would submit to you this morning, and this is the last thing we'll talk about. Take a consideration inventory of your heart. What is it your heart is focused on this morning? Would you stand with me? Folks, that was not a hard message. I hope folks didn't receive it that way. That was a message that will bring liberation to us. Hallelujah, it's bringing liberation to me by faith. I've got to learn to meditate. I've got to learn to not have, let my heart be diverted from the principle, capital P. And I don't mean principle like the guy that had the paddle in the school that I got some licks from every once in a while or doing something bad. I'm talking about the one that matters above all things. God, hallelujah. Would you lift your hands this morning? Let's just praise our Father. God, we are grateful for the Word. We're thankful, Father, that the Word is life unto us. The word that is spoken by spirit, they are spirit and life, hallelujah. And I thank you, Holy Ghost, that you will bring to our remembrance these words. I thank you, O oh God. We sit here today, stand here today, God, before you, and we are asking that our heart be wholly devoted and thinking upon you. That we consider you before everything else. Help us, Father. Help us to soften our hearts, O oh God, unto you. Help us, O oh God, to be singular in our focus and purpose. That, Father God, our stream, Father God, though it may seem weak, Lord, in you is mighty, Father. It is mighty waters that are within us that come forth to bring life. And when we bring our streams together in a corporate setting, O oh God, it becomes a raging river, Father God, of faith and expectation, because we're considering you above all things, Father. Thank you, O oh God, for this message. Thank you, O oh God, that it won't be something that just falls out onto the floor or through our ears, Father God, in a couple days, never to be recounted again. But Holy Spirit, bring it to our remembrance. We give you permission to do it. Let it just instruct our hearts, Lord, when we go down to lay our head on the bed, Lord God. Hallelujah. Help us, O oh God. Help us, O oh God. This morning, in Jesus' name, thank you, O oh God. Thank you, O oh God, for your goodness and for your mercy. Hallelujah. Thank you, Father. In closing, I just want to encourage you to do one more thing. Just close your eyes and just determine. Let the Holy Spirit partner with you. And you determine what you're going to do with this word. Because we would all agree with it, say it was a good word. But what's the one practical thing... You're going to move away with to bring application to this word. Just give you a few seconds to think on that.
And Father, we thank you for giving us the grace to put this into practice. And we love you and we honor you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. God bless you and have an incredible week. And we'll see you next time.